So we were the young Turks, we were the mavericks, we were the, the females that everyone thought, what the hell do they know about car rental? And, you know, the more they laughed, the more determined we became. The Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. Matt Brown, Matt Brown, Matt Brown Show. Hey guys, so one of my goals for the year was to get all the investors from the hit TV series The Shark Tank onto The Matt Brown Show. And it's taken me a year or so, to be fair, to track all of these guys down. But I finally managed to get my last shark onto the show. Now, her name is Dawn Nathan-Jones. Now, many of you would have seen or heard of the car brand Europe Car before. Well, Dawn was at the helm of Europe Car as its CEO for some 14 years. And today, she sits on several company boards as an advisor. And of course, as you know, she is investing into exciting startups within the South African ecosystem. Now, speaking of the ecosystem. Interestingly, we recorded this interview inside Workshop 17 in the VNA waterfront in Cape Town, which is a thriving technology hub in the heart of the mother city, and which in my view was the perfect location to explore Dawn's journey in business and to unpack what she has learned in the process of becoming one of South Africa's leading women in business. So without further ado, enter Dawn Nathan-Jones. Hey guys, welcome back to the Matt Brown Show. I have with me at Workshop 17 in Cape Town, which we'll chat about a bit more shortly in Cape Town. So Dawn, thank you very much for your time and great to have you on the hot seat. Thanks, Matt. It's awesome to be talking to you. I've heard so much about you and now I have face-to-face contact with you. True story. And you also you're my final shock. So that was one of my goals for the year was to get all of the investors from the show on my show. So tick box and bucket list sorted. Cool. <laughs> you know what they say about last? <laughs> Leave the best till the end. <laughs> this, this is true. This is true. Manus, uh, Gil, and Romeo, if you're listening, your work has been uh, cut out for you. <laughs> cool. So let's start off by going here. So what was the greatest lesson your father ever taught you? Humility. Humility, being humble, being grateful for what you have, being, you know, feeling blessed. Um, so yeah, my dad um, died actually quite early, but my mom was quite a powerful businesswoman and one of my mentors. My mom was yeah, forced to be reckoned with and still is. What did she do? Um, was she an entrepreneur? Yeah, she was. Um, she was an entrepreneur. She worked in different businesses and she ran cosmetics and then got into nutrition and yeah, taught me how to be self-sufficient. You know, if you wanted to go overseas, then boy, you better work for it. And that's really how my career started. My mom said, you know, you want to go overseas. I want you to do a contiki tour. Well, you better go and work. So I sold cosmetics. I did all sorts of things um, until I happened to meet Carol Scott and we started this car rental business. And did you go overseas? Did you enjoy it over there? You know what? I never got on that contiki tour. Did you not? No, 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 no. So this was 1980 and I'd matriculated um, just before that and done a whole lot of different things to earn money. And I said, I'm going to study, I'm going to study, but I'm going to earn money first. And yeah, I never ever did the Contiki tour. I happened to accidentally meet um, one of the uh, co-founders and I was 21 years old, didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to make lots of money and I'd proved. I mean, I'd, at like 13, I was selling cosmetics for my mom over holidays and making 
like lots of money, like 600 rand a day. When, so, you, were, yeah. when you were 13? When I was 13, yeah. So um, I knew that I wanted to be successful. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I had no desire to be in the motor industry or transport or logistics. But I happened to meet this amazing dynamic woman who said, you know, come join me. We're going to be the the biggest thing to revolutionize the car rental industry. And, you know, in 1980, I mean, did we know what revolutionize was? <laughs> but Probably we not. sure did. <laughs> we sure did. So we were the young Turks. We were the mavericks. We were the, the, the females that everyone thought, what the hell do they know about car rental? And, you know, the more they laughed, the more determined we became. It's funny that, say, how when you're young and you're female and it's kind of like there's that stigma attached, well, what, what can a woman possibly know about a car? Do you know what I mean? And even less about car rental and being a business owner. It was kind of at that time, I imagine, it must have been quite a, um, a perception absolutely. that you had to deal with, right? You're absolutely right, Matt. And very few people took us seriously. I remember having discussions with some of the motor manufacturers and they didn't take us seriously. And in fact, one manufacturer, Toyota, and I always mention them, literally gave us a break and took us seriously and never looked back. And we ended up on a like 35 year incredible relationship with them. What were the events that led up to that first break? Because I've often found that just in the case of, you know, my own business is just you kind of keep putting yourself out there. You keep hustling yeah. every day in the trenches, like going to war every day. And then something happens where it puts the business onto a different trajectory. So we were very fortunate that Imperial um, at that stage was Imperial Motors. It was a half-baked sort of motor dealership. So they were they were our backers and they just wanted like a small little offshoot car rental business to dispose of their secondhand cars. And we had other ideas. We wanted to compete in South Africa with the big international brands. We were the only local brand. So we started off as Imperial. And what gave us the break is just pure determination, just actually having doors closed in our faces all the time. And the big break came when a couple of corporates gave us an opportunity. I mean, we really, we didn't have kiosks. We had a huge disadvantage in terms of how we operated. And our competitors were very tough on us. I mean, I was escorted and arrested off the premises in Durban Airport for trading illegally and all of those things. So, you know, my son often says, yeah, my mom went to prison. I never went to prison, but I went to the Amlazi police station many, many times. And, you know, those <laughs> things, those things make you so strong. Mm. And... In fact, Gil often says breakdowns are your biggest breakthroughs, and I yes. believe in that. You know, challenges and adversity just make you stronger. And the more people, in fact, I thank our competitors. I'm very friendly with many of them today, and I thank them because they made us stronger because the more they put us down, the stronger we became. That tenacity, I mean, that's such an important quality for entrepreneurs in general and even in life to a larger extent. But that quality, the tenacity of we're going to make this work regardless of what gets thrown in our path, where did you learn that quality from? Was it from observing your mother do the same sort of thing? or? So I think, yes, from my family, but then also being in an environment. So Bill Lynch was the financial director of Imperial at the time. He went on to win the Entrepreneur of the World Global Award. In fact, one of the only South Africans to ever, ever win it. 
And he was great. You know, he actually just gave us an opening to, to do what we want. And, and the more we would fail, the more he would say, you can do it and just give us the encouragement. So I think the lesson there is to have the right mentor, to have somebody who, you know, keeps picking you up because, you know, there's nothing worse than thinking you're going to be a failure. I think everyone needs to actually put their hand up and say, you know, I've, I've made a mistake. I've failed. And there's nothing wrong with failing. I see failure as, you know, own up to it. We all make mistakes. Own up to it. Grow up to it and, you know, fix it and sort of move on. So, yes, from my family, from Bill Lynch, from Carol Scott, I was very blessed to have the greatest mentors that anyone could ever, ever been exposed to. But a lot of people don't know how to use their mentors or coaches. You know, you'll see them and you won't recognize that these people can actually take you to another level. I think it's the it's the hard conversations. I call them the come to Jesus conversations. You know? <laughs> I'm Jewish. <laughs> <Do you> know? <laughs> I'm sure I you have those you. all the time. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's kind of like, especially when, and I'm sure you'll relate having all your investments in these guys. We will talk about where we are and, and the implications of this for South Africa and Africa. But going back to the point here, I think it's the hard conversations are the ones that really matter because when you're stuck inside the trenches every day, sometimes you're stuck inside mm. the bottle and you can't read the label, to quote mm. Howard Mann. And so what you actually need is perspective. And when you're so associated with the business that you're running or the problems that you're having, whether that's cash flow or finding the mm. right people or you're losing a client or whatever, these things massively affect your personal mindset mm. as a business owner. Mm. And when you're in that rut sometimes, a mentor, and this is just my experience, a mentor is there to help you find that perspective so mm. that you can make new decisions. So going back to your point, why is it, do you think, that entrepreneurs uh, perhaps don't engage with mentors the right way? So in my experience, I think entrepreneurs like to do things their way. And many people believe they're entrepreneurs because they do it their way and that's the right way. So they don't take kindly to advice. I mean, I've given advice to many young entrepreneurs, budding entrepreneurs, and they don't take it. They they just have their clear idea in terms of what they want to do. So I think you've got to listen to people. And wisdom is a great thing. You asked me earlier what my dad taught me, our humility and wisdom. And, you know, you've just got to listen to people out there that, that know better than you. And also, I think you've got to tap into places. We can't, we, none of us um, are good at everything. So if financially you not good, go and find a financial mentor. You know, if in tech you're not good, go and look for somebody that's great in that digital space. So as an entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs are passionate about what they do, whether it's a product, whether it's an IT, whether it's whatever it is, and they don't surround themselves or they don't tap into people that that are better at other things that maybe they're not so good at. Yeah, I mean, what did Vinny Lingham say to me? He said, listen, I said to him, what makes a startup successful? And he basically said, look, basically a business is just a group of people working towards a common goal, right? And so within that business, you're going to have different skill sets. So to your point, you know, I want to ask you about... Basically, you're going to have these different skill sets, right? So if you're the founder, sometimes you have to do marketing, sales, project management, HR. You're basically wearing all these different hats to get your business off the ground. But at some point, you get traction, you get some customers in, you start getting revenue, cash flow is not a problem anymore, you're out of the survival stage, and now you're running a great startup Mm. that's exciting, it's got room to grow, potentially a global market that you have access to. Now, 
at that point, you're going to hire people into marketing, into sales, into HR, into legal, into finance or what have you. And so my question to you is, should an entrepreneur just focus on their strengths and not worry about their weaknesses? And what's the opportunity cost in doing that? Or should they actually know, like, I hate managing people, like I really do. I'm a great salesman, I'm a brilliant strategist and all that kind of stuff, but I really don't like managing people. I'm good at fostering and motivating them, but managing them on a day-to-day basis, for instance, is really bad for me. So do you think in that context, and of course there are going to be many others, but do you think in that context, is that something that I should work on? or that other entrepreneurs should work on? Or should it just be a case of saying, listen, I acknowledge that I'm weak in this area. I'd rather get someone else to do it. So Matt, a very good question. So I believe that an entrepreneur should focus on what they're good at. Um, and they mustn't dilute that because if you're not good at admin, you know, don't try and become good at admin. But what growing and building a business does teach you, it teaches you lessons. I mean, I wasn't a very good leader and I wasn't very good at managing people because I was very driven. I was deemed as to be quite aggressive and forceful and assertive. But you learn that over time. It doesn't come naturally. And if you really want to head up, and my idea was that this was going to be a global business and we were going to compete with the big ones and we were going to be the benchmark for service delivery in the in the global context of car rental. And if you have that big dream, then you actually have to be a good all-rounder as you move up. If you just want to be an entrepreneur, a small-time, medium-time entrepreneur, you don't need to surround yourself with the people that can do that. But it's hard to let go. It's very, very hard to let go. I was very hands-on incredibly hands-on. And that to me was my biggest challenge was the art of letting go. And once you surround yourself with not like-minded people, uh, people that maybe share the same values as you, but people that are different to you because it's no good having a team that everyone thinks, and then you all just become like messengers. So yeah, I like to be the message, (laughs) not the messenger. (laughs) (laughs) But you need people that are the message and the messenger. Are you with me? Otherwise, you know, it becomes very um, autocratic. I hear you. I do hear you. Sometimes I feel though that entrepreneurs, especially once they get traction, they actually become the obstacle to the growth of the business. It's funny and it comes down to all sorts of things like time management. Do you check your email all day, every day, or do you check it from seven to eight in the morning and then from five to six? Do you know what I mean? And it's it's almost like you have to create those operational efficiencies through the art of letting go. Yeah. And it's about control. Yeah. And it's funny, like in this interview, I'm the one that's controlling this interview, <laughs> right? It's like running a business, right? So, but I guess, how do you let go? Because yeah. it's kind of like, remember when you sat down, you said, you know, why didn't I interview you? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, and it's like, oh, I'm open to it, but it's, wow, what yeah. would that be like? You kind of get uncomfortable. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So how do you let go? So letting go really requires a lot of trust. You've got to trust in people and you've got to give them the leeway and empower them. They're going to make mistakes and they're not going to do things the way you do them. And actually that's good. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. And at first you think it's a bad thing, but then it's a good thing. And as long as you're open to the fact that people are better than you. I've always said that the last 10 years of my career, my entire senior management team were so much smarter than me. They were better than me. I could lead them like I was a conductor of an orchestra. And you've just got to realize that people are better than you. And I think sometimes women particularly are quite power hungry and don't like letting go and don't like criticism. And I think it's something that you've got to be open to. So yeah, letting go is is not easy, but you have to. How did you go about motivating your 
board, for instance. So, and what did you learn in the process of doing that? So, yeah, I think that came from me um, having built a reputation that the board hopefully trusted my instinct. There were many times that I had heated debates. So the one area for me was 2008 when there was this global meltdown, the recession hit. And I'd been looking around and I realized that unless we really were a global player, because people buy online and if somebody's coming to South Africa and they're living in Europe, who's Imperial Car Rental? So we were a local brand and local is good. But, you know, car rental and um, travel airlines have been highly commoditized and, you know, people just book a flight. I mean, if I ask you, you know, in the last 10 trips who you flew with, you wouldn't really probably know because it's about time, proximity, it's about all of those things, price that fit into you and car rental became exactly the same. So I went to the board with this proposal that we needed to align with a global player and literally, I don't believe in dual branding, you one or the other, and we needed to change our name from Imperial to Europe Car. They looked at me as though I was absolutely insane. Like this was the riskiest thing that we would ever have done for the business and how can you take like a three decade and and there were a lot of people that had emotional attachment to the name Imperial and I just felt that we really needed to to be global we needed to be on the global platform what was happening is a large amount of our corporate businesses with shared services and decisions being made in Dubai or an island or or wherever or these huge big so SA Breweries head office no longer in South Africa Old Mutual you know all of these companies we weren't even on the shopping list so when they were tender for a car rental supply because we were local, we weren't even there. So in 2007, 2008, I motivated that we needed to be global and we needed to be on this global platform, local, but had this incredible global footprint. And it took a long time, but yeah, so I was successful. I mean, I never really found two things. I never found the fact that I was like the only female on the board ever to be a disadvantage to me. And, you know, the fact that sometimes I didn't always agree with with um, the way that the board wanted to go, it was never, you know, we always got around it. So we always found a, a good medium. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I think that's a great story for a number of reasons because when you have a board, this is what Vinny actually said to me. So when he was at Gift, basically, yeah. he said, we're going to become a gift card mobile business, right? And his whole board said no. And he was like, hang on, but I'm the CEO. 
Like, it's my decision. And literally, they had to fight about the direction of the company. And so that's an interesting um, story that both of you share. My question, though, to you is, how did you make that decision? How do you make, historically, how do you make decisions in business? Because for me, it's such an important quality because it's a skill that anybody can learn. But it's not a skill that many of us are born with. Mm. And I've asked this question before to a number of entrepreneurs uh, and CEOs, but how do you make decisions? I mean, take this story around rebranding it to Europe car to make sure that effectively you've got international reputational equity or however you want to describe it. But was it intuitive? In other words, was it something that you felt in your gut or was it a combination of what you felt in your gut and what you were seeing out there in the market? So you may laugh at me, but there is a thing called a woman's intuition. So so that's like a little <laughs> I <forgot>. bit. Oh. <laughs> so there's a woman's intuition, but 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 jokes aside, I think you've got to keep relevant. You've got to keep looking at markets and how markets are moving. You've got to surround yourself with people that can tell you what's happening. You know what trends, what's out there, who your competitors are. And I'm not just talking about local competitors, and I'm not talking about direct competitors. So I'll give you two examples. One, how train the how trains coming to Johannesburg. You know, who thought the car train was going to impact on car rental? Well, it did. I then quickly rushed out and I got the University of Pretoria to do a whole feasibility study on how it was going to impact car rental. And we, we, we turned our business around to say, okay, well, we will be at the station and we'll provide a free jockey service, et cetera, et cetera. And it actually could have taken us out of the industry. And the other one is Uber. You know, everyone said Uber. Like, oh, that's no direct competitor for the car rental industry. Well, I can tell you it is and it was and it has been. So I think you've got to keep yourself relevant and you've got to keep looking out there, not at your competitors, but your indirect competitors and what's happening on the global front because the market changes and it changes so quickly. It really, really changes so quickly. And I think you've got to keep your fingers in a lot of different pies. So if we had just said, we're a corporate car rental company, we rely on corporate business, but you you can't because the market has moved. The market has shifted. Today, one of the biggest markets is where insurance companies, as an add-on service, give you a free car rental, you know, when you have an accident, God forbid, or if anything happens. So, I mean, that's a massive, massive market. Who could have read that, you know, 20 years down the line, that market didn't even exist. And now it's the biggest market for the car rental industry. So, yeah, things change all the time. So you can't really rely on just one market. You've got to really test and try. Testing, 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 dabbling, putting fingers out there, feelers out there constantly. The rest of the show is coming up shortly, but now a quick word from one of our sponsors. So I've got some great news. Digital Swarm is finally coming to Joburg. For those of you who don't know, Digital Swarm is a digital marketing event designed to help grow the digital marketing industry in South Africa. It also allows industry leaders to share their insights, knowledge, and experiences. Digit Labs Digital Swarm will be hosted in Joburg at the Vega School Bordeaux campus. The event will be kicking off on the 27th of September from 6pm. Now, guest speakers for the night include KFC's digital manager, Benjamin Schroeder, URUP CEO and founder, Mike Eilertsen, and myself, Matt Brown, the CEO of Matt Brown Media and Digital Kung Fu. So if you're into digital marketing or you're interested in finding out more about the subject, make sure you book your ticket on eventbrite.com. That's B-R-I-T-E.com. You can also sign up for Digital Swap 
swarm updates at digitlab.co.za forward slash what dash we dash do. So I will see you at the Digital Swarm event on the 27th of September. So we are here in Workshop 17 in Cape Town. It's my first time here. It's amazing here. If you guys haven't uh, been here before, please come down and check it out. It's really cool. Dawn, what is Workshop 17? And in your view, why does it matter so much to South Africa and Africa? So Workshop 17 is a hub where, well, you can see there's a big sign um, that says collaborate, which really brings people together. So hot seats, hot desks for entrepreneurs who don't particularly want to work out of their office or coffee shops to work in a very, very innovative like environment, a very young environment. So, so what happened is the watershed opened a number of years ago and there was this additional space up here, which they have turned into a hub for entrepreneurs, small businesses, independents to come and work. So for me, it's great. And I stumbled across it. One of my businesses, one of each, a handbag business, which is one of the first investments I made on Shark Tank. They actually have um, a little kiosk. They're doing incredibly well. And so, yeah, I've stumbled across it in, in a couple of businesses and a couple of meetings that I'd had here. I love the environment. I love the fact that it's it's fresh, it's young, it's dynamic. And you've got so many the people that I've met here. It's just unbelievable. Networking opportunities, amazing. So it, it really is. And it's and it's really the way to go. You know, the old brick and mortar office. You know, if you think about it, it's a, quite an old fashioned concept. This podcast was recorded, composed for and mixed by Audio Militia. Leaders in composition, vinyl mix and sound design. For more info, visit audiomilitia.com. Yeah, so before we went on air, I asked you this question, which was, what is one great injustice that you see in the world of business and entrepreneurship? And you mentioned education. Yes. And I find it interesting that that was your answer, because when I look here, I'm looking at all these startups, and I'm wondering, there's such a huge gap between the current education system right, and what that prepares you for, which in my view is an industrial age type oh. of result, which means, hey, go and get your master's degree in whatever that is, and you can go and work for Anglo-American, right? Yet here we are with, you know, I'm looking at all the names on the board there, and there's probably like 150 different startups that, that have offices here. And I can guarantee you this, well, I guess my working assumption here is that they probably went to school, maybe they didn't. Yeah. But our education system is not geared to produce this result. And it's such an irony oh. because I'd love to know more about the backstory behind Workshop 17. Mm. But let's focus on education. I mean, how do we prepare? And I meet youngsters all the time. They're like, you know, I've been listening to your show and it's always such a humbling thing for me to meet people because I never ever thought anyone would actually listen. <laughs> but it's always humbling for me to meet these kids. And they said to me, Matt, like, how do we start a business? Yeah. So I feel very strongly about entrepreneurs really are the new economy and where we're going to create jobs and teach people to become self-sufficient. So what really irks me is that our education system is still based on the old Anglo-Saxon system where you have your teachers who are 50 or 60, they've never really run businesses. But at the end of the day, when you finish school, you go into university and you, you're in business and most of them have never been in business. And, and I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of people who are looking for funding who come to me. And it's really sad that some of them, like in their 40s and 50s, they come to me and they want to leave the corporate world and they want to be an entrepreneur. It's too late, baby shoes. I like 
I want to tell them that, I don't. But we really need to get to the heart of the problem, and that's in the schools. And how are we educating our children? How are we educating the future of this country? So I'm involved in a business. Um, well, I'm hoping to get involved in a business where we can take this entrepreneurial concept to the schools and, and run pretty much like a little mini shark tank. Um, but in schools, and I've done a couple of these sessions, and it's actually mind-blowing what these youngsters have in their head, but then they're boxed, and they, they, they're taught to think like in their box, and we need to unbox them. We need to get them to think about if tomorrow I had to make my own money, what would I do? So I'll give you a quick example. So my son is 11, and he knows that I'm always looking out for an opportunity. And there are millions, millions, millions. So he, he knows his mom, and he knows how crazy I am. And so months ago, he read on the internet this thing called spinners. I don't know if, you, if you've seen is those. Is that the finger yeah. things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, he said, mom, please won't you go and buy me some. So I started off and bought him 50. He started a little page, a website, and he started selling them at school. So now we brand new to Cape Town, brand new school, brand new boy. And he started selling them at school. And he sold his first 15. He said, please reorder, which I was ordering from China. He wanted these Nikes. These Nikes cost 2700 I said, you know what? You've got to pay for them yourself. So he started this little business. And then he got called in by the vice principal to say, no, 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 no. We don't do this here. Stop it immediately. I don't have a problem with that. But what I do have a problem is that we need to be teaching people how to be entrepreneurial. So yes, you know, you start selling spinners and then you're selling drugs and I, I understand that. But the message to him wasn't the right message. So he was quite neurotic to do anything. And I don't want him to stop thinking entrepreneurial. He must think every single day, how am I going to make money? Exactly. I mean, he has to work for himself. I mean, I've got a two and a half year old and my wife, she's always like, you know, well, you know, we have to give him the choice. And I'm like, yeah, sure. But you can always guide his thinking in a particular mm -hmm. direction. I mean, he can choose to be a doctor. That's fine. If that's what really lights him up. But if that's not what lights him up, then yeah. he's certainly not going to go work for a bank especially not here, uh, and in fact, in anywhere else in the world, because for me, I want to inspire him, and I'm sure you do as well, to create amazing things in the world, because at no other point in our history do we have such opportunities to do that. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Uh, I agree with you. And, you know, I think we, we're living in amazing times where there's, I mean, we're just about on the verge of a recession. But it's quite amazing. You look back, you know, way back to the long depression was 1870s to 1890. And out of the, the long recession came the best innovation, General Electric, the turbine, the generator, the light bulb, et cetera, et cetera. Then you had the depression um, in the, the 1930s and 1940s, greatest, greatest innovation. Then more recently, in 2008, out of that recession came the likes of the Ubers and all of – so I think that, you know, just going back to the times that we're living in, yes, we're in, um, we're in a bit of a recession and the global economy um, is, is not wonderful, but therein lies opportunity for entrepreneurs to think out of the box. And this is why I find this environment just so inspiring. These youngsters inspire me. They just – the things that they're coming up with is just mind-blowing. Yeah, I was interviewing uh, Mike Abel a year or so ago now and he started MNC Saatchi Abel, the yes. big advertising agency, you probably know him. Yeah. So he said the same thing. I said to him, listen, you know, we're in a technical recession, you know, airline sales are tanking, like there's a number of whatever, whatever. He's like, yes. And I said to him, but then do you think it's actually a good time to start a business, you know, when it's so bad out there? 
you know, it's important to know like kind of global markets and macro trends that are affecting you as a startup. And he was like, yes, in fact, it's the best time to start one. Because if you succeed when the market is completely shit, then you know that you've got something worthwhile. 100, 100% agree. There's no better time. And you know, things are going to improve and pick up. And when they do, people become a bit complacent and they stop thinking of ideas because the business is pouring in the door. So I think recession is actually not a bad thing. It gets people to think, to go out there and come up with new ideas. And to do more with less. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah, and that's really in yeah. today's world. It's kind of like yeah. that's where the agility and yeah. competitive advantages are found. Yeah, you know, it's like how can we make this work despite the fact? Absolutely. I mean, everyone when Uber first came around, I mean, everyone like what? Who who would want to use this thing? I mean, in fact, I'll give you an example. One of our board members many years ago. I don't know if you know Get on Novik. I'm sure you've interviewed him. Uh, he was the ex CEO of Comic Lula. Amazing. Yeah, you should. Amazing, amazing entrepreneur. Him and I worked together for, for a very long time. And I remember about 18 years ago when Kalula started, Get On approached me and said, listen, I'd like to do this concept of like you fly and you rent a car like for like, I don't know, 99 rand a day or like let's make flying and car rental affordable. Let's put it out there. Let's make it affordable. And we did some numbers and we ran some figures and we said, yeah, great, great, great idea. I remember going to the board and saying Kalula. And they said, like, who's this Kalula? What is Kalula? It hadn't been launched yet. And I said, well, it's an online airline. You go online. I promise you the board said, what? I was told, who's going to go onto their machine? <laughs> who's going to go onto the machine and making make an airline booking? Who's going to do that? And isn't it amazing? I mean, that's 17, 18 years ago. And look at Kalula, I mean, an, an amazing story is of a disruptor mm. that came in and disrupted the whole South African airline industry. Do you know what I think should happen in that space as a startup? Maybe not. Maybe it's a, a subsidiary of Kalula. But change the commercial model because business owners like myself and you are flying up and down how many times? Every week? Yeah. yeah uh, count yeah. the weeks in a year. Yeah. Like 40 out of 52 weeks yeah. in a year, right? So make it a subscription. There you Time go. Time share. Timeshare, yeah, exactly. Yeah, timeshare, buy your seat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Pay 12 grand a month and you can fly as many times as you want. Boom, only for business. I'm going to go go and Google it this (laughs) afternoon. I'm going to research. I wonder if there's anything out there. You know, they say that there's, there's no new innovations. It's just the way you actually put it out there. Um, that everything's been tried and tested before and some are just um, reinvented. Yeah, Rich Mulholland calls it the 10% factor. Do you know Rich? Yeah. Okay. So how's it Rich? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's the 10%. I mean, when you think that you have, I suppose it's your greatest weakness as an entrepreneur business owner because when you think you know it all, that's when you're at your weakest. Yeah, absolutely. And there's always that 10% for improvements. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And to your point, like, what if we just made yeah. it a subscription or yeah. someone else did that? Exactly. How would that affect our business? Exactly. Can we talk about funding for a second? So I've got this event literally a few hundred meters from here, all about cryptocurrencies. And one of the very interesting insights around historically, if you were going to fund your business, you either had to do that through equity financing or mm. debt. Mm. But now that is not your only two options. You've actually got initial coin offerings or token mm. sales. Mm. 
Um, and it's a wild west out there, but there's been one and a half billion dollars raised and literally you buy a token based mm-hmm. on, you know, it's not even a business. Yeah. It's literally not a business. You're buying a digital asset and, and that's got an assigned value. Anyway, so we're looking at this whole way of funding startups has fundamentally, or it's changing, I guess. So, I mean, what advice would you have for startups or, or business owners who are looking to finance their business? What's the right type of capital that you should seek and when should you seek it? Okay, so I think every business is, is very different depending on whether it's asset light, asset heavy, what type of business it is. But for, for me, um, my frustration is that we haven't educated entrepreneurs or maybe there's not enough out there. I know you're doing a lot of these workshops and that's great. And I urge entrepreneurs to go to these workshops to learn more about the different options because what happens is they want to start a business, they've got a great idea and they go to the bank. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not the only option. They go to the bank. I spoke to somebody the other day. She said, no, she went to the bank. She got a credit card for one of the big banks and they gave her a hundred thousand rand credit on a credit card and she's starting up a business like that. I mean, how on earth do you start a business like that. So what I'm saying is that there needs to be um, more information for young entrepreneurs in terms of how do they get the funding and what funding do you need and how do you value your business? Because a lot of them, like they have this thing, I need 100,000. And I don't know, it's like the magical number, I need 100,000. And you know, you go through the numbers and you break everything down and very often they may need 20 or 30,000 to start off. And I always say, you know, start off slowly and then build up. We all have visions of grandeur and we all want to have this big business, but you've got to go step by step by step. So my point going back to what you were saying just now, Matt, is more education for entrepreneurs, budding young entrepreneurs on how to obtain the right funding and financing. Such a great subject to talk about um, because I've explored this a lot and you're, I suppose you're a shark. Many people know you from the show. So there's a number of things I think we should touch on because from my side, I've had a number of investors approach me and, you know, can we talk or whatever the case is. And my view is that it's not about the money. Or it shouldn't be about the money. And money is the necessity, mm. it's the want, but it's not the need. What you need is someone like a mentor, but a, mm. a, 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 an investor with enough capital, but someone more importantly that shares your vision. Otherwise, I think there's going to be problems. Absolutely agreed. Because investors, whether you call them sharks, invested or, or whatever they are, they want a return on their investment. I mean, I'm here to make a return on my investment. I'm not here to give handouts because there are many other areas that I'll give handouts to. But to go back to your point, I think, yes, like-minded people, share your vision, share your value. And then um, importantly is the somebody that can open doors for you because very often these entrepreneurs, they just need the right channel. They need the right networks. They need the right contacts. They need to know how to, to put a pitch together. Um, and we saw that very much on on Shark Tank that so many of them felt very passionate but they weren't they none of us bit because they they just didn't know how to put their their pitch together how you know very enthusiastic very passionate but didn't know really about like in the next month or the next five years where this and what the business would look like they didn't know their numbers I mean I nope. found that come up time and time and time again what's your run rate what's your cost per acquisition you know, what's your churn rates? Like these are the numbers that you should be, you know, live and, and breathe every day. And, and the biggest one was that people don't know. I mean, you're going to laugh, but people, and it's it's not funny. It's the way that we're bringing up our kids. They do not know the difference between revenue, gross profit and net profit. Um, okay, but surely that should be taught in school, <laughs> going back to our educational point here. 
But I mean, but yeah, I mean, but that is a classic example yeah. because you don't get taught that at school. Yeah, you only get taught that. You get that you, taught yeah. the theory of yeah, that, yeah, yeah. But you don't get taught how does that really relate to business? How does that if you've got a bakery and you're making bread, you know, what is your revenue? What is the cost of your product? And then what do you end up with? You know, what is left? You know, I explained this to my son when he wanted to sell spinners. Yes, sure, I was buying them for forty rand. He was selling for eighty rand. You know, what was the cost of distribution? There was a cost putting this little YouTube video together. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's a conversation I think that we need to have with our kids. By the way, the apple never falls far from the tree, does it? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you subscribe, just out of interest, do you subscribe to the philosophy of if you can bootstrap it, finance it yourself? I do. Absolutely. Absolutely, because you need skin in the game and very often they lose interest. I mean, I had somebody the other day come to me and I did give them a bit of a loan and they lost they lost interest. Actually, they could have got, got that money and they would have had skin in the game. They lost interest. So I 100% agree with that philosophy. I've had this discussion with uh, Anish Dasani from who founded Giraffe. They won the Global Seed Stars program. We were talking about the mindsets of local investors versus international investors. And what was really interesting was that he found working with international investors a lot more compelling than the local ones for two reasons. One, the local investors were very slow. So they had just won the Global Seed Stars program and it literally took them, after six months, they were still asking for financial statements. It was yeah. kind of like, but why are you going over this? That's not the point. We need someone who understands the global markets, yeah. etc. And I'm exploring this with you because when I look at all these startups here, I imagine that a lot of them are digitally led, which means, in my experience, if you have an interface, you're a global mm. player. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, and then so now you've got this option to say, well, do I work with an international investor? So they're working with Amidia, the guy mm. um, who founded eBay. And I said to him, but like, surely there was something about the local investor that you found appealing. And the only thing that he said was they know the local markets, mm. but they don't understand tech. Mm. The VC space in South Africa is not where it should be. Absolutely. And then I guess this is interesting for me because to your point around when you take on an investor, and there's so many of these stories, but because they're motivated by profit, if they give you a million dollars, they want you to burn all of that as fast as possible in the pursuit of growth so that they can mm. get their, their mm. output. That's the mindset mm. A. Mindset B could be, listen, we're going to give you the million dollars. We're going to bring you our network. We're going to bring you our expertise and our experience. We're going to open doors for you. But hey, we're just going to take 20% of your business mm. and we'll cash it out when we want. We don't mm. want that 20x mm. return. Mm. And that's investor B. Now, if mm. I had to choose between investor A or investor B, I'd go with investor B. 100%. So that you can carry on running mm. your business, solve yeah. the problem that you need from a scale perspective without having to potentially run the risk mm. of your culture as mm. a business changing mm. because you're motivated by profits. Yeah. And I think if you look at option B, I think there also needs to be an exit strategy as an investor. I don't want to invest in businesses forever and ever because at some point in time, you want to let them go. And you want to, you know, you want to like after five years, let them go and they must actually run their business. So just give them that initial funding that they need. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, option B. Let them let them run it, just take your return and let them get on with it. Although it's very hard to find those kinds of investors. <laughs> That's the only challenge. Yeah, absolutely. But if you do find one, yeah. hold on to them, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So um, just some rapid fire questions and then uh, I'll let you go back to uh, your weekend, I guess. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, when you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? 
what locally or globally? Anyone? Um, successful, I would think of Elon Musk. Why? Because, yeah, it's a space that I suppose that I came from. Autonomous cars, um, just, I, th I think he's phenomenal in terms of really just creating new boxes. I think he's, he's really, and he's so low-key. And for me, that is what success is about. You don't really need to stand on your soapbox and brag to the world. Like Richard Branson. I mean, he, he really does. I mean, he's very successful, but he's very high profile. And humble. And very humble, yeah. Yeah. Um, if I could give you a time machine or the keys to a time machine and you could go back to yourself when you were 20 years old and give yourself one piece of advice about business or life, mm. what would that piece of advice be? So that piece of advice, when I was 20, I wanted to make money. I just wanted to make a lot of money and I didn't educate myself. I didn't go to university. I only got to study later on in life. I think you must do that as early as possible and as learn as, learn as much as possible as early as possible. What's more important for an entrepreneur, EQ or IQ? EQ. <laughs> Only because I wasn't a straight A student. <laughs> Only because I wasn't straight A. But you know what? I mean, you, you've obviously read the research out there that the greatest leaders have such high EQ. So strangely enough, some of the, the geeky people, I mean, like Bill Gates, for example, apparently his EQ is quite low. Um, what's the Apple guy? Uh, um, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. His EQ was incredibly, incredibly low. So uh, I, I suppose horses for courses, but for me, EQ. EQ. What's one question? I mean, you must do tons of media interviews and, and looking back at your career. I mean, who knows how many that is. But when you look back at all of that, what's one question about business or entrepreneurship that no one has ever asked you, but you wish they did? Sure. Let me think of that. That's a hard one. <laughs> do you want to come back to it? <laughs> Let me come back to it. Let me give it some thought. That's, a, that's an incredible question. So people ask, what are the things that make you stay up at night? So no one's ever asked, what asked me what, at night? what keeps you up at night. No, people ask that all the time. Do they? Yeah. What keeps you up at night? Absolutely. What keeps you up at night? But what makes you go to sleep? What does make you go to sleep? <laughs> you don't have to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> Meditation. And I believe very much in the hands, heart and the head mind, body, and soul, and connecting and reflecting, that makes me go to sleep. So I always have a look at my day, what I've done, what I've achieved, what I've been able to give back, what I've learned. And I think if you can do that, I think it makes, that certainly makes me sleep. So Minus is also a huge proponent of meditation. Is there a type of meditation that you subscribe to? No. So I did TM a long time ago, a long, long time ago, but um, I do my own meditation. So I've got an app that, I, that I've downloaded that, that actually helps me meditate. But it's just introspection. It's just reflecting on what you've done for the day. And for me, that's important. That, that really helps me sleep at night because I don't think it's healthy not um, to sleep. I, I like my eight hours sleep at night. Otherwise, I cannot function the next morning and a good cup of coffee as I wake up. And I think people underplay sleep, relaxation, to be stressed, I think can be very counterproductive and very, very bad, not only for you, but for people around you. Because I know that when I used to stress and I didn't have enough sleep and I was working 16, 17 hours a day, I was actually a bad leader and I wasn't making good business decisions. Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, not all the time. No, but, but it's sometimes. the same. I mean, I got the red eye this morning 
I can feel I'm not like at a 10. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? 100%. So it's important. Yeah. But I mean, it's, I suppose this is actually about stress management. Yeah. Outside of meditation, are there any other recommended behaviors or habits that entrepreneurs can adopt to manage stress? Oh, there's many. So for me, I'm a girl, um, in case you haven't noticed. No, no, I've noticed. <laughs> I believe that you need some me time. And whether you're male or female, you need some me time, whether that's on the golf course, whether that's taking a couple of hours, having a massage, whatever. Um, I really think that everyone needs some me time and, you know, not feeling guilty about it. And I think that in the corporate world, I spent my life feeling guilty about, you know, not having enough time for myself, not having enough time for my family, not giving work enough time. And I think one of the things, any advice that I can give, particularly female entrepreneurs, females actually are born with this feeling of guilt, a sense of guilt. You're not a good mom. You're not a, I'm sure you've got a wife. You know what I'm no, talking it's about. Absolutely true. And I think you need to dash the sense of guilt, dash the guilt and just get on with it. You know, I, I talk to a lot of women and a lot of women ask me, how do you balance the work life? There's no such thing as balance. Just be the best you can be in both. There's no such thing as work life balance. If anyone tells you that they've got it right, well, you know what, I don't buy into that. But um, yeah, dash the guilt, get some me time and do whatever it takes to de-stress. You know, whether it's reading, I love my own space and particularly in Cape Town. I mean, I go for walks on my own and I love my own space. Amazing. Uh, last question for you. Why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets me out of bed in the morning is the fact that I actually have to keep reinventing myself. And I think it's one of the things where I'm no youngster. But the fact that, you know, what is new? What is different? What am I going to do today that is going to make a difference and an impact in some way, whether it's to myself, whether it's to other people. And I'm very passionate about so many different things. But what really gets me out of bed is the potential and the opportunities for youth in this country if we get it right in terms of education. Not just through Shark Tank, but taking a sort of quantum leap outside of the corporate world and being in this entrepreneurial space has given me a new hope in South Africa that there is incredible talent here absolutely incredible talent. So one, what gets me up is to identify and go and find, search, seek that talent and then take that talent and, and, and make a difference to do something with it. Um, so that's what that's what's keeping me busy. I mean, as I said, I'm in the returning stage of my life and it's just so much fun. It's absolutely, for me, it's more rewarding than the earning. And judging by where we are, there's a lot of talent here. Sure, incredible. Dawn, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute privilege to get to know you. And yeah, let's see what uh, what amazing things will transpire or manifest in the future for you. It's going to be very exciting to watch. Thanks, Matt. It was great chatting to you. Thank you. Cool. Ciao. Hey guys, so you know about 18 months ago when I made the decision to start podcasting, it really was a terrifically bad idea for many reasons. I had no listenership, there was no markets, and quite frankly, I had no idea what I was doing. Fast forward to today, however, and I've built a loyal listenership in 100 countries around the world, and I've done that all without spending a cent on advertising. Now, this is a classic example of how the media landscape is shifting towards on-demand, mobile-based content consumption, and the combination of storytelling, marketing, and innovation on podcasts is proving to be one of the most 
powerful forms of new media marketing. Now everyone has a story to tell, but the problem is that you just don't know how to tell it in a new way to the communities that you serve. Now if you'd like to find out how to tell your own story to a global audience, simply check out Get podcasting.co.za it's a community for storytellers and podcasters where i will handhold you through the process of telling your own story on a podcast oh and for a limited time only it's free (laughs) so join us now at getpodcasting.co.za and i will see you there hey guys thanks so much for listening to the matt brown show it's been an absolute privilege having you with us And remember, if you'd like more information on Digital Kung Fu or our guests and the full show notes, all you have to do is head on over to digitalkungfu.co.za and you can catch us all over the social media graph. So till next time. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.